Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of this forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Today, we are hosting a well-known and well-respected economist, Leonard Silk, economics columnist for the New York Times. Before giving you a quick look at his other credentials, however, allow me to define what we do here at Westminster in offering these forums six or seven times a year in terms of, if you will, several economies. There's the economy of time an hour at noon for all comers to hear someone who has earned the right to be heard, who lives on an ethical cutting edge in his or her discipline. There's the economy of space, this sanctuary easily accessible at the south end of the Nicollet Mall. There's the economy of entrance, free and open to the public. There's the economy of financial support, of corporations, of foundations, and of many friends. Today's program is being co-sponsored by the Investor Relations Group of Padilla and Spear Incorporated on the occasion of their 25th anniversary. And there's the economy of the airwaves, the instant transmission of what is said here over Minnesota Public Radio and thence around the country by American public radio. But back to our special guest, Mr. Leonard Silk. In addition to being the economics columnist of the New York Times, he is distinguished visiting professor of economics at Pace University. Prior to joining the Times in 1970, he was with Business Week from 54 to 69, serving as economics editor, editorial page editor, and then chairman of the editorial board. Mr. Silk received his A.B. degree from the University of Wisconsin in 1940 and his Ph.D. from Duke University in 47. He has served the government in a number of capacities and is currently a member of the Research Advisory Board of the Committee for Economic Development. Mr. Silk has written a number of books including Forecasting Business Trends, Contemporary Economics, Capitalism, the Moving Target, Ethics in Profits, and the American Establishment. Well, let's hold up right there and suggest that Mr. Silk pick up where that last title, The American Establishment, leaves off and invite him to address us on his chosen topic for the day, The American Establishment, How It Views the World. Welcome, Mr. Silk. Fairly high on this side. Okay. Thank you very much. It, it, it's a great pleasure to be here in Minnesota uh, and a great honor to be addressing this distinguished forum. I was delighted to be asked to talk about the American establishment. It's a uh, concept which is very mysterious uh, to a great many people, including always even to myself. Uh, and my son. I never like to leave out my son, Mark, uh, who was my co-author of the book. Some people doubt that uh, such a thing as the establishment even exists. 
And we, we uh, sought uh, to define it uh, by looking at uh, institutions, which I think uh, somewhat uh, without uh, serious challenge uh, can be considered part of the so-called American establishment. Before I get to their names, let me note that uh, I'm trying to use the term not necessarily as an honorific and not necessarily as a pejorative. Like all things in this world, including thee and me, uh, it is uh, an imperfect institution or set of institutions, which is not to say that it is necessarily evil. I hope like thee and me. The American establishment, uh, as a phrase, uh, came into uh, vogue uh, sometime in uh, the uh, late 50s or early 60s. The, the person who more than any other uh, publicized it was the late Richard Rovere, who was uh, one of the best uh, political writers we have ever had in this country. He, he wrote for The New Yorker. And I don't know how much our uh, concept of the establishment really parallels uh, Richard Rovere's. Uh, he once defined uh, the whole thing in terms of a single individual uh, as uh, the uh, quintessential establishment figure. That individual was uh, John McCloy, uh, who is still with us, uh, old but uh, vital. He is one of the six wise men, a new book that's been published. He was a secretary of defense. He was a Wall Street investment banker. Uh, he was an undersecretary of state. He was everything that one could be, and that did typify the movement of an, of a, an important establishment figure uh, from government to business to charity. He was, incidentally, also chairman of the board of the Ford Foundation. Well, we looked at these various institutions and uh, divided them into different categories. Uh, in the realm of education, uh, we focused on Harvard, uh, which is not to say that it is only Harvard that is part of the establishment. It is also Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and Columbia. Uh, and then you get into more trouble as you move westward uh, I would say it is probably not the University of Minnesota or the University of Wisconsin uh, where I went. Uh, it, it's not obvious why it is not those state-sponsored uh, institutions, uh, but rather institutions that have a certain social prestige and have a great deal of money. Money as endowment. Uh, our earliest analogy for the American establishment was with the British uh, establishment. Uh, which has as one of its elements that we don't have, having said goodbye uh, to uh, the king a long time ago. It, it has royalty, it has uh, the nobility as part of its uh, establishment. But one of the characteristics uh, of the establishment, although it wasn't called that uh, in a first uh, definition, was that it had independent means to support it. Now, what was the importance of that? The importance uh, was, this you find in 18th century writings about the established Church of England, the importance was that it did not have to sell itself. It did not have to be a huckster of ideas. 
uh, or of causes. It did not have to be dependent on even its own congregation for financial support uh, because it might prefer to be in the position of chastening its own congregation. I sometimes think, to go back to The New Yorker, of a great cartoon uh, by Whitney Darrow, Jr. Uh, that has a, uh, a minister uh, up at uh, the altar, um, and uh, his deacon is holding the collection plate, which seems to have a quarter and a dime in it. And the minister uh, turns to his deacon and says, well, I guess back to the good old generalities. <laughs> 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 well, a real establishment doesn't want to be dependent uh, on, its, on its customers, on its congregation. Uh, it wants to have the means to speak the truth uh, and to do what it needs to do without selling itself. Um, so what are some of these other things? Incidentally, that is... Uh, they hope at least Harvard or Princeton or Yale uh, and some smaller places like Amherst and Williams and maybe Reed and there are probably Western institutions which qualify slightly different to talk about the University of Texas, uh, that being also state money, uh, but maybe it comes close. Well, among uh, the institutions uh, also, uh, we included the New York Times, uh, the uh, institution that I have the, uh, I, I guess the word is pleasure to work for, the onerous uh, duty and sometimes agonizing frustration to work for, uh, but honor too. And uh, the Times uh, reached a crisis uh, in its recent history, uh, which uh, some of the press looked at, so I need not uh, keep it a secret here, which was a financial crisis. And we had to uh, pull our socks up and really make some money uh, back in the early 1970s. And that produced a kind of a, uh, an upheaval within the paper uh, on the editorial board, and I write about that. Uh, that is entirely my chapter, I have to say, not my son's, uh, in the book, The Establishment. Um, but it again gave us our independence, gave us our freedom, uh, and I think that uh, emboldened uh, by plenty of money in the bank uh, and a very much stronger balance sheet, uh, we could sally forth and take on anybody, Richard Nixon, the war, Pentagon Papers, you name it. Uh, and uh, I think that we did uh, emerge from our financial uh, troubles a much stronger paper uh, and an even bolder member uh, of the establishment. Well, without taking time to discuss them in detail, uh, our other institutions included the great foundations, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, the Carnegie Corporation, uh, and nowadays there are others, the MacArthur Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, and so on. Uh, and they are, again, uh, very typically rich uh, but not necessarily uh, self-serving or self-interested. Uh, that's always, uh, of course, a question, whether uh, behind this uh, mask uh, or image 
uh, of uh, charity, of doing good, of concern with the public interest, there are interests of either the institutions themselves uh, or of the people who established them uh, or of the staff, bureaucrats to use the dirty word, uh, who uh, run them. And uh, some of the attack on establishment institutions uh, is uh, in that form. Uh, attacks on uh, McGeorge Bundy when he was head of the Ford Foundation uh, or on other individuals uh, who are people with their own agendas, uh, sometimes allegedly secret agendas, uh, which may include whatever. Uh, it, it, incidentally, part of the attack on Bundy and the Ford Foundation uh, took place during the Civil Rights Movement uh, when the uh, not-so-secret uh, agenda of the Foundation was to, bl to bring uh, blacks uh, into uh, equality or greater measure of equality uh, in a society that was obviously uh, white-dominated. Well, uh, as I said, uh, the, the very existence of such a body uh, including foundations, uh, business, the Council on Foreign Relations, the New York Times, the Washington Post, what your earlier speaker, David Halberstam, referred to as the powers that be, all of that collectivity uh, became a symbol of uh, all that was wrong with the country during Vietnam. And I think the connection was not entirely uh, a remote one. Uh, those people who had uh, served in government uh, during the Kennedy administration and then the Johnson administration, uh, particularly in the foreign policy area, uh, were establishmentarians. Uh, and they had, uh, in my view, blundered uh, and helped our nation to blunder into uh, the longest war, I guess, in its history. Not the most uh, costly in lives, but costly enough. Uh, if you've been to Washington to look at the Vietnam Wall, and uh, costly in fortune and treasure and in inflation and the weakening of our national uh, economic system. For a time, it looked like a tearing of the American social fabric uh, as well. So I understand very well uh, that some people were uh, angry or furious uh, at the thing called the establishment. In fact, uh, in the wake of uh, Vietnam, uh, a lot of uh, politicians who once might not have done so began to run against the establishment. Uh, I would say that that was uh, essentially what Jimmy Carter did. Uh, he was a, uh, a, a poor boy from Plains. Uh, he was an ex-naval uh, officer. Uh, he was not a big shot. Uh, but, you know, not having had the advantage of our book to guide him, uh, he uh, decided nevertheless, uh, despite this anti-establishment come on, and this kind of Georgia populism, he decided to make peace with the establishment. Uh, and uh, it looks a little bit funny in retrospect to remind oneself of it, 
But he writes in his own biography uh, that he, he met this wonderful group of people uh, at a thing called the Trilateral Commission. And uh, th they helped to educate him, uh, he says in his uh, biography, in Why Not the Best, uh, that uh, they helped him to understand what was really happening in the world. Uh, and after uh, he was elected to the presidency, he named to his cabinet uh, Mike Blumenthal, uh, who was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and uh, various other things, uh, Cyrus Vance, also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and incidentally, both of them of the members of the Trilateral Commission, Juanita Krebs, who was a classmate of mine uh, in graduate school at Duke, uh, and uh, also a member of the Trilateral Commission. You began to go through the names of members of the Trilateral Commission, and they were all members, with only a couple of exceptions, uh, of the Carter Cabinet. Some anti-establishmentarian uh, and uh, that uh, continued. Of course, there was uh, later falling out. Uh, I remember a uh, White House dinner I attended with Mr. and Mrs. Carter uh, and uh, my wife and a group of other uh, columnists and editorial page writers or editors and editors of papers. It was a, actually a small dinner party. Uh, and I asked uh, the president uh, what he thought of, since we were already working on this beastly book, uh, what he thought of uh, when somebody said the establishment. And he said, uh, arrogant, self-centered, uh, with no particular use for people like me. <laughs> and I was tempted at that point to say, well, then why <laughs> did you uh, join and enlist uh, such droves of people? Incidentally, it wasn't just the cabinet. There were at the undersecretary, assistant secretary, and so on level, lots of other people from the Trilateral Commission uh, who were members in good standing of other institutions such as those that I've named. Um, and who had been to the, quote, right schools, unquote, uh, and so forth. Well, uh, after the Carter administration came an even more determined uh, enemy uh, of the establishment, namely Ronald Reagan. And uh, he and many of the people around him uh, have regarded uh, the establishment with considerable suspicion and wariness. Uh, and you haven't uh, had people in the government like, say, David Rockefeller uh, or the other uh, dons of the establishment. Uh, the, the, the real Reaganites are people like, say, uh, Ed Meese, uh, or uh, a former member of the inner circle, Lynn Nofziger, uh, or, uh, oh, I don't know, you can choose, choose your members. I don't know whether anybody is actually the perfect embodiment of the non-establishment. Uh, but it is difficult to find uh, anyone whom you'd say is, is perfect establishment. I suppose that the closest you might come would be somebody like George Schultz, uh, who went to Princeton, uh, where he played halfback, uh, blocking back, uh, and went on to graduate work at MIT, 
and became the president uh, in due course after his service as Nixon's Secretary of the Treasury, and before that, uh, Director of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, president of uh, the Bechtel Corporation, uh, and still has very close ties to a great Midwestern institution that I should include in the establishment, the University of Chicago, founded by John D. Rockefeller I, with big Rockefeller money, and George is uh, very much uh, Chicago, and brought some, a few Chicago people in uh, at one time or another, like Ken Dam, uh, who was Under Secretary of State, and who later brought in as his Under Secretary John Whitehead, uh, who went to Haverford College, Quaker, not quite establishment, but uh, certainly not anti. Well, uh, the Reagan uh, people uh, are extremely interesting uh, in this respect. And I want to uh, turn to a recent speech uh, that a member of the Reagan administration uh, delivered uh, on November the 7th. Uh, this was the undersecretary, uh, rather the deputy secretary of defense, excuse me, of treasury, Richard G. Darman, who gave a speech that got a lot of attention uh, since it was played on page one of the New York Times uh, because of his attack on what he called the corpocracy. I haven't talked this morning so far about the role of big business in the establishment. And there are some big businesses that are part of it and others that aren't part of it. Uh, it, it would take me too far afield to define. But in his uh, speech, uh, attacking the corpocracy, uh, Secretary Darman uh, said, well, what was to be done about the problem of competitiveness in the United States? He said the conventional answer suggests a turn toward U.S. fiscal deficit reduction. Then he said, that's the establishmentarian view. Indeed, it is my view that one should attack the deficit and that much that's wrong was this uh, swing toward a so-called populism on the part of supply-siders and Mr. Reagan toward not caring at all about whether the budget uh, was uh, balanced, even uh, throwing it out and then rhetorically bringing it back and still being very ambivalent about it. But he said it wasn't uh, just that problem at all, uh, the problem of competitiveness. It was this decadent establishment, this decadent corporate corpocracy that dominated the country. So he goes on to say uh, that uh, American corpocracy is a problem that is clearly of rising popular interest and concern. There is a natural resonance in calling attention to the problem, represented well by the near immediate rise to bestsellership of David Halberstam's new book, The Reckoning, about which he told you. A review of the book, and then goes on, I won't take that, but of course uh, what the review he's quoting talks about how Ford, uh, creator not only of the Tin Lizzie and subsequent vehicles, but of the Ford Foundation, uh, fell into sloppy management practices and fell victim to its counterpart, Datsun, or Nissan, 
uh, and th those two actors are taken as uh, symbols of uh, not only the American automobile industry versus the Japanese automobile industry, but symbols of America uh, versus Japan. Then uh, Secretary Darman goes on to say that that unfavorable comparison of American management obviously strikes a responsive note with a wide public. The rising concern about the stewardship of America's great corporate bureaucracies is reflected also in the media's increasing infatuation with characters like Carl Icahn and T. Boone Pickens, Jr. Once dismissed as corporate raiders, they are gaining attention as a new kind of populist folk hero taking on not only big corporations, but the phenomenon of corpocracy itself. New heroes. Ivan Bosky, hero. <laughs> this speech was delivered, I point out to you, on November the 7th, 1986, not some other year. Its timing was exquisite. So he then goes on to say, if anyone has any doubt that these new populist stirrings may represent a significant force, they should note that leaders of the conventional business establishment now seem to be organizing counteraction. A recent front page news story began, leaders of big business facing a new round of takeover attempts aimed at several billion dollar corporations are planning a major campaign to bolster the image of American management and build strong legal defenses against corporate raiders. And he concludes, when the conventional business establishment finally pulls itself together to organize a defense, it is a good sign that an issue has moved beyond its control. Well, in the wake of uh, the Bosky affair and the spreading uh, scandal on Wall Street and elsewhere, uh, I think uh, that uh, we can't look to corporate raiders, arbitragers, takeover artists, and so forth uh, to heal uh, whatever uh, is wrong with this country. Uh, and there are th uh, things wrong with this country. Um, I uh, think I will wind up, as a matter of fact, with two suggestions which come uh, from a, uh, uh, not a speech, but a conversation I once had with Senator Russell Long of Louisiana, who has just retired from the Senate. Um, I, Russell Long said to me that, you know, I have to go around a lot, Leonard, talking to these rubber chicken dinners. And the other night I was at one of these dinners and uh, the speaker was saying, there are two things that are fundamentally wrong with America. One of them is apathy, and the other is ignorance. And Senator Long said, I turned to the guy who was sitting at my right, and I said to him, do you think that's right, that the two fundamentally wrong things with America are apathy and ignorance? And he said, I don't know, and furthermore, I don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I think in the interest of uh, question period, uh, I should stop at this point, uh, but I will be glad to talk about the second half of the title of my talk, which was how the establishment views the world now. With that, we are open to questions.
I think it'll travel with you. You can sit down. Oh, moment. okay. Thank you, Leonard Silk. Uh, it's obvious to us that you know and you care, and we look forward to hearing more from you in our question period. I heard you respond to questions this morning over breakfast, and I can assure our audience you, you have some, uh, some uh, uh, good things to, to be hearing. Let me just uh, remind our radio audience that uh, you have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, and that our speaker today is Leonard Silk who is economics columnist of the New York Times, and he is here with the aid of the Investor Relations Group of Padella and Speer, talking about the American establishment and how it views the world. We move now to let those who must leave do so, but also to have questions on those yellow cards sent to the aisles. And so please, uh, ushers, uh, pick up those cards, bring them forward to our uh, two people who will uh, sort them for me. And as that's happening, I think I would like to invite our speaker to return to the podium. I've got a couple of preliminary questions that uh, I'd like to pose and then pave the way for, for others. You've already moved into this subject, but let us encourage you to do so the more. This appeared in our morning paper here in Minneapolis. It's uh, Dateline Washington by Howard Rowan of the Washington Post. Hobart Rowan. Hobart, did I not? <laughs> Hobart, I'm sorry. Hobart Rowan, R-O-W-E-N. The Ivan Bosky scandal could be Wall Street's Watergate. This guy, says one of the best-known securities market investigators, has been in so many deals he could upset the world. Well, uh, I didn't realize that Bart Rowan, who was a good friend, uh, had uh, referred to Watergate because it happened that in the column I filed about an hour ago, I did the same. Uh, and uh, what I started out by saying was that it sometimes takes a specific event uh, to uh, crystallize and to uh, cure a, uh, a, a generally bad uh, situation. And I think that's uh, essentially what Watergate did. It may be true, uh, in retrospect, as uh, Nixonian supporters uh, said at the time, uh, that, uh, you know, what was Watergate? Nothing. Uh, some two-bit burglary that the president didn't even really know about, uh, that it was just one of those things. Even if you make it bigger than that, uh, it's certainly not the first dirty trick that ever took place in American history. Uh, but what it did was to open up national concerns about the so-called imperial presidency, to use the term that Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Uh, has given to it, uh, more than anyone, I guess, uh, and about the way uh, the uh, separation of powers in government had been invaded and broken down, and the way, in general, politics was being conducted. I think that's basically what Watergate was, not, a, not merely a two-bit uh, burglary. Well, uh, it cannot be said that Mr. Bosky is a two-bit arbitrager. Uh, he has agreed to pay $100 million, uh, and his total uh, losses may be considerably bigger than that. This morning's paper tells us that he sold off $440 million worth of stock 
just before he agreed to the $100 million fine, uh, or his fund did. Uh, I don't know whether he owns all of that or some significant part of it, uh, so it's not exactly two-bit stuff. Nevertheless, in the whole uh, configuration of the country, uh, $100 million is not big money, $440 million is not big money, a national debt of $200 billion, or 221 to be precise about it in fiscal 1986, is pretty big money. And the welfare of the country is. Uh, a, a trade deficit of over $150 billion is also big money, considerably bigger than Mr. Boesky. Now, this is not to blame uh, Boesky for the national debt, the trade deficit, you know, and every other sin in the world. Uh, any more than it is to, to blame uh, E. Howard uh, Hughes, Hunt, whatever his name was, Hunt, uh, for uh, all the ills of the nation uh, in uh, 1973. But it does symbolize a lot of things that are wrong. And uh, I think that we have to take the measure of it, as we did in Watergate era, uh, we've got to make reforms and corrections and changes, and that we'll be a healthier and a more confident nation when we do. And I think it will spill over into our own conduct of our own personal business, of corporate business. Uh, the security markets will be strengthened, uh, but I don't want to lapse into a premature euphoria. Uh, all of that will happen uh, if we make the reforms that are now indicated. Another question, this one from the audience. In regard to the current scandal of Wall Street people making huge profits through the use of inside information, some have proposed that the laws be changed and inside information be legalized. Would you comment? Well, I think that that is not a very practical uh, suggestion. Uh, the analogy is presumably with the Volstead Act banning booze and that that was the basic way of getting rid of bootleggers uh, and getting rid of gangsters and other racketeers. Uh, if you also read a different story in this morning's paper, the racketeers and gangsters, they are still with us, like the poor. Uh, and uh, the Volstead Act didn't get rid of them. It did get rid of uh, bootleggers, uh, excepting in states that retained uh, prohibition laws. Uh, but I think the false analogy is this, that uh, inside information is not the same as a bottle of liquor. Inside information is precious uh, far beyond other kinds of information because you can deal with it at the expense uh, of other people, or you have an advantage which other people do not have and you can make uh, millions or hundreds of millions uh, of dollars uh, through such information. Now, uh, to create a market in such information, and incidentally, uh, why assume that it'll be given away free? If, if I work for a company and I uh, know that we are just at the point of a deal with some other company on a merger or an acquisition, uh, why should I just say, well, I guess I'll buy some of our stock. Uh, I, I may be a poor, broken-down vice president uh, with only $196,000 in the bank, and there are people out there with millions and tens of millions and more and more to borrow. 
Uh, that's the game known as arbitraging nowadays, once a respectable term for speculation, really speculation, when there were risks involved in order to equilibrate markets. Uh, but this is a different thing altogether. And if I can sell uh, my inside information for millions and millions of dollars, why should I give it away? And then what is the harm to other people? We wrote our security laws and created the Securities and Exchange Commission to deal with precisely this problem after the great crash in 1929 and after the exposure of all kinds of skullduggery and corruption that had existed in Wall Street. We have built strong capital markets in this country by having them essentially open markets. And that means not only uh, not uh, dealing in insider information, but not using that information uh, for your own sake at the expense of others. And I think that our approach with the SEC was right and I think it needs to be made even stronger. Thank you. Another question from the floor. What are the moral foundations of the American establishment and the avenues they use to influence the uh, economics of our country? Well, I don't think one can summarize their morals uh, in a simple sentence. Uh, I think, uh, in general, there is the uh, presumption that their behavior uh, is moral. I'm talking about the people themselves. Uh, that public service uh, is, is what the name of the game really is. That you should give up uh, income in order to become a public official uh, or to engage in community service uh, at whatever level. And to serve on uh, university boards or nonprofit boards, on your, on your board, sir. Uh, that, uh, that service to the public wheel is what the essence of the morality of the establishment is supposed to be. Uh, now, whether people uh, always honor that morality uh, or not is obviously a different question. And I think we have had instances, and we discussed some of them in our book, uh, where uh, prominent establishment people uh, violated uh, th that uh, sort of morality, where they really were self-dealing, self-serving, uh, not publicly uh, interested. Ties in with the next question, and bearing on your main theme, how, in fact, does the establishment view the world? Well, I guess that I would have to uh, break it down. Uh, I would say, though, that where once, uh, such as, say, uh, before Vietnam, uh, the establishment uh, was pretty unified in uh, feeling that it knew how to resist uh, communism uh, and that the basis of American foreign policy uh, was anti-communist, uh, simply, whether it took the form of uh, economic aid, uh, Marshall Plan, and uh, subsequent uh, efforts to help underdeveloped countries. It dated back to the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank, and uh, the International Monetary Fund, and bilateral aid, and so forth. In the military area, uh, its real creation was NATO. Uh, that is the use of force uh, to contain communism. Uh, and it was that uh, unified idea 
that really uh, underlay not only our uh, taking up arms in Vietnam, uh, but taking up arms in Korea. Uh, and you could also say in World War II. Uh, some of you are old enough, as I am, to remember the intense fight in this country over whether we should go to war against Hitler. Uh, the establishment's position, with hardly any exceptions, I would say, among influential people, was yes, we should, we should go to war. Uh, it was in support of Roosevelt's uh, destroyer bases with Britain and so forth. So there's been a long history of military as well as economic internationalism on the part of the establishment. I think that Vietnam to some extent uh, shook that. Uh, and uh, not that it uh, uh, produced a new establishment position, but I think that it produced a more careful one. And it certainly produced division uh, within the establishment uh, over it. George Schultz, as a conservative, and even if he is not a great buddy of Caspar Weinberger's, uh, although both of them worked for Bechtel and served earlier in other administrations, in the Nixon administration, uh, George Schultz is not uh, the same person as Cy Vance. Uh, incidentally, George was very close to being Cy on Iran. Uh, he was against uh, sending arms to Iran, which was a somewhat different thing than uh, what uh, Cy Vance was against, which was sending uh, a mission into Vietnam to rescue hostages, but they were both hostage uh, rescue efforts. Uh, I find it very hard now to uh, unify what the establishment is for. Some of it has been won over to a Reagan approach. Uh, others have not been. Uh, in the domestic economy, it is more conventional than uh, Reaganomics, supply-side economics. Uh, it is uh, modern in a certain sense of being anti-cyclical. Uh, it's for Keynesian policies, uh, but it uh, is not for believing that all you have to do in this world is cut taxes and cut them some more and shrink government and eliminate some more in order to have a better country. Uh, that, I would say, is not an establishment position. Uh, on the contrary, I think the establishment has much greater respect for government and thinks that government is essential to a good, healthy, overall economy. Of course, it is private enterprise as well, but it wants a better balance between public and private uh, forces in the society. Question that relates, I think, is there some constellation of influential schools, businesses, people who represent a new establishment, dash West Coast, question mark? Well, uh, of course, uh, any group can become an establishment. And uh, if the West Coast uh, got it together well enough, uh, it certainly could uh, become it. Uh, incidentally, another now that we talk on another West Coast institution, which happens to be the one that George Schultz is now associated with, is Stanford University. Uh, and the country has, in a sense, been moving westward. Mm -hmm. And centers of power, uh, including here in Minneapolis, uh, but also in San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, are not focused in the east. This thing called the establishment sometimes was called the eastern establishment. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are good members of the establishment who hang out in California and Washington and Oregon, you know, such places. 
but if you use establishment in our sense, in my sons in my sense, that it's a kind of third force in the country, that it has this public morality I spoke of, that it's a balancing force, that's what I mean by third force, between the public sector and the private sector, uh, that it has these uh, national uh, public interested intentions, uh, that for that you can't be what I would call anti-establishment in your style uh, and in your action. Uh, it, and it has, uh, you know, it had people like Milton Friedman who were its heavy supporters and so on. Uh, it has since become establishmentarian. And all of the big uh, right-wing uh, money is, has ceased to flow to the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, it is too respectable. It is too establishmentarian. Uh, and uh, that is their big problem. Uh, they are hoping to get out of it with the help of their acting head, uh, Paul McCracken from the University of Michigan. Uh, but the AEI is still in trouble for having become so respectable. <laughs> Another question. What is the morality of making our grandchildren pay for our deficits? Oh, well, uh, I think that, uh, you know, again, no sensible society can live only for itself, just as no individual person uh, can live only for himself or herself. Uh, and our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, that thing that is called posterity, is part of our concern. Uh, that's what underlies uh, the environmental movement. Sure, we could have a ball and maybe make a lot of money burning down the national forests and selling off the national parks uh, for uh, building condominiums or bowling alleys or casinos. Uh, and what we would have left would be, well, a ruined country. Uh, and so uh, I think all sensible public policy has an eye to the future, and that's true of fiscal policy and debt policy. These are real burdens. Uh, there is no, as the economists love to say, free lunch. Uh, and if we don't pay for the lunch, somebody else's, such as our grandchildren. Another question. How do the establishment view the state of black-white relations in this country? I believe they are leading the attack here against apartheid, but they seem to ignore the problems here. Well, again, a very good question. Uh, some of the establishment cannot be credited uh, with uh, having been all that much concerned about apartheid. Um, but I think, finally, uh, most of uh, its institutions and members decided uh, that that was indeed a worthy cause. Uh, and uh, that has included many corporations as well as the foundations. Uh, oddly enough, it's, it's really been uh, the universities uh, that have been somewhat more hesitant, uh, certainly on the issue of dis disvestment, uh, divestment, disinvestment uh, in South Africa. Uh, there was a good deal of lip service uh, to uh, anti-apartheid uh, policies and actions but a considerable degree of hesitance uh, in the American academic world on the part of boards of trustees and such people uh, where South Africa was concerned. Uh, but I accept uh, the general spirit of the first part of the question that now, whatever its hesitancy, the establishment is very anti-apartheid, uh, and that even applies to uh, our administration. Uh, at home, well, it costs more. Uh, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, you're not uh, dealing with somebody else's problems, you're dealing with your own. Uh, your own neighborhoods, your own uh, jobs, uh, your own problems in pushing some people aside if you're going to have equal opportunity programs. Uh, it also costs real money, not uh, just uh, a little loss for IBM or maybe no loss at all, uh, but, uh, you know, real, real problems of cost if you were to educate, if you were to change society, if you were to attack the problems of the central city, uh, if you were to uh, change e the educational system. Uh, you know, all those things are, are for real. And I think the difficulty of dealing with problems uh, increases by, uh, you know, the, the ease of dealing by, this is going to be Silk's Law if I can invent it, increases by the square of the distance to how far away the problem is. You can get uh, very, very noble about things in Moscow, in Johannesburg, in uh, Vietnam, you know. Uh, it gets tougher and tougher uh, as you reach, well, Minneapolis. Another question or comment. Someone once said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Do you believe that this aphorism applies to the government, to the press? Yes, uh, I do. Uh, I think one always needs to be worried about uh, too much uh, power. Uh, to start with the press, uh, we uh, need uh, competition. Uh, I think the press uh, problem uh, where uh, lack of power uh, goes is greatest at the local level, uh, not at the national level. Uh, at the local level, uh, you have so many towns nowadays and cities that are one newspaper towns. And uh, I think they've got far too much power. Uh, often they may exercise it by silence, but silence can be deadly when it comes to uh, issues and causes. Uh, but sometimes they do use it that way. In the national uh, realm, uh, I'm a little bit less uh, convinced that the press has excessive power. Uh, well, take us. Uh, we have to compete with the Washington Post and with uh, the Wall Street Journal and with the Los Angeles Times and so on. Uh, there are syndicates all over the place. There's also ABC, CBS, Ted Turner, NBC, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's word of mouth, and there's the ability of corporations to speak their minds and individuals. It's not perfect, far from it. Uh, but I still think that this is a pretty open marketplace nationally for ideas. Internationally, uh, maybe less so because of the lack of competition abroad. Uh, where the government is concerned, uh, there are times when we look as if uh, we have too much centralization of power uh, in the country, and I think that we had a kind of reenactment of that danger in this Iran show. And I'm now not talking about, you know, whether it's good to rescue hostages or not, but the bypassing of the State Department, the bypassing of Congress, what was at least said to be at first, the bypassing of the CIA, subsequent uh, disclosure that uh, Mr. Casey was involved. Uh, but uh, we need open government. Uh, when there's a particular mission like this, you need to come as close to it as you can. Uh, I don't know. I think that Watergate's effects are still with us. Uh, I haven't worried uh, overly much about uh, government shutting down papers. We were unhappy about being excluded from the Grenada mission. 
and we're unhappy whenever uh, people seem to be invading the Freedom of Information Act, uh, you prevent absolute power by information, by knowledge, by independent institutions that can fight the institutions of government or the press. Uh, we uh, took as a lesson uh, our own concern by creating the op-ed page. We were the first op-ed page in the country uh, by making more room for letters, by encouraging people to write in, by publishing corrections and editorial notes. Uh, and many papers have ombudsmen, all the rest of it. You do what you can, but I think it is absolutely crucial in this country that we agree with uh, Lord Bryce that that's a danger, uh, Lord Acton, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, and never forget it. What responsibility do we have for the third world? Well, we are uh, human beings, and members of the third world are the same. Uh, and I think that uh, my kind of uh, morality, religion, uh, is that we have to take care of our brothers and sisters and help them. Now, there are practical questions on how much we can do, how much they should do for themselves, uh, how to cooperate, who else should help. Uh, you know, those are all legitimate questions. Uh, but that there is a moral obligation uh, I feel uh, very strongly about. Incidentally, so do the Roman Catholic bishops uh, who had uh, obligations to the third world as a critical element in their recent statement, uh, e economic equality for all, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the Roman Catholic bishop, bishops issued in Washington uh, about uh, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. That was going to be the next question. Uh, any comment that you'd care to make about what the uh, Catholic bishops have come up with? Would you care to comment at any? Yes. Well, uh, it, it's, a, it's a difficult uh, um, problem to comment on such a long and detailed document uh, in brief. Uh, I've already said I agree with their general view on the, on the third world. On the whole issue of poverty, uh, I think that even the critics of the commission, uh, led by the former Secretary of the Treasury, William E. Simon, uh, and his uh, co-chairman, Michael Novak of uh, Georgetown University, uh, the so-called leaders of the lay commission, the lay Catholic commission, uh, that they would agree that poverty is uh, a bad thing, uh, that Jesus uh, urged people to help the poor, uh, that that is a traditional mission of the church. But what they then say, and what is more legitimately controversial, uh, is uh, that uh, is the question of how. And they accuse uh, the bishops of uh, offering, in effect, socialistic solutions, welfare state solutions, solutions that would uh, give too heavy a role to government and would undermine uh, the uh, free market, uh, in one of the phrases, which I can paraphrase but not quote exactly, they, they said the bishops should understand the source of wealth in the United States and why we are rich and why there is so much poverty in other places. Now, <clears throat> to that, uh, I agree, uh, as it happens, with the bishops. What they said was, national wealth is not enough to deal with the problems of poverty, and the free market has not been enough to deal with the problems of poverty. Uh, that uh, we still have with us a great many poor people, 33 million by the government's official poverty standard, and that we have to have programs, and not only charity, public programs, 
to get at the roots of poverty and to uh, deal uh, quickly also with the evil effects of poverty on the helpless, on children, on the ill, on the blind, lame, and so on, uh, whatever. Uh, well, I think that uh, the position of the critics is that it's going to happen by and by. But as the old Wobbly song said, there'll be pie in the sky by and by when you die. Uh, and there are problems that are today's problems and tomorrow's problems, and we can't wait for the free market and the wonders of textbook economics to, to deal with those problems. Those are problems of today and tomorrow, and alas, of yesterday, and that's why we have them today. Uh, so I would like to see, uh, as the bishops would, a stronger and more skillful uh, attack uh, on these problems of poverty, both at home uh, and abroad. We don't have easy answers, and we don't have to be in agreement about the weights that should be given to uh, free enterprise versus government action uh, or nonprofit organization action. Uh, there's plenty of room for honest disagreement uh, uh, over means and methods, but I think we should be agreed uh, on the goals and on the necessity of dealing with those uh, goals as urgent. Well, sir, given the fact that our mission here is to see key issues in ethical perspective, I think we would do well to, uh, to come to a close with your very appropriate comments about the mm -hmm. bishop's letter regarding the economy. We cannot live independent of the establishment or the economy <laughs> or our ethical values. You've helped us focus on those and other important things, and we thank you for coming. Thank you. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Let me remove this. Okay.